now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Earth Destruction Directive Podcast. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I want to thank everybody for downloading and listening to the show. I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode, which was a guidance where I took a look at some opening themes to some of my favorite tokusatsu uh, TV shows. Uh, you know, I, I figured it was a good idea that uh, Andrew Leyland and Tom Panarese had done, and what better way to show respect for a good idea than to steal it. And uh, so I hope everybody enjoyed that. We have a very special episode tonight as well. No, it's not an idea I stole from somebody else, but I am taking a ploy from uh, other podcasts, and I have a guest with me tonight. You might know him best as one of the uh, one of the regulars, I guess, or founders, I should say, of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. He's the man who has found his joy in comics, not in a character, not in a creator, but at a price point. Mr. Professor. Alan. How you doing, Alan? Very, very well, and so far I have not been the victim of a hostile takeover here at Relatively Geeky HQ, <laughs> though the night is young. <laughs> well, you know, that that's why you've got those Doombots patrolling around outside on constant Comes alert. Comes in handy. Yeah. Yeah, see, I just, uh, I, I, I simply podcast from an undisclosed location, so... Uh, for a while, I had a mobile studio, and that's a shoot for anyone who's listened to the show long enough to remember when I used to record while driving in the car. Uh, so, uh, so you know, it, it, it's you know, it, you control that um, that flow of information, and uh, you know, people are less likely to you know come pounding at your door with an army of monsters to try and take over. <laughs> the authorities have got to love the mobile podcasting rig. <laughs> uh, Hair Metal Hero said I needed a little song, or maybe it was Chris, it might have been Chris Honeywell said I needed a little sign said on air. To put in the window when I was driving. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, uh, Alan, you're, we're, we're here tonight. We're going to talk some Ultraman comics. Looking forward to it. All right. And we've also, of course, got an issue of the Shogun Warriors. So this is an all-comics-all-the-time episode of Earth Destruction Directive. Love it. Love yeah, I it. Fe- I feel this way I fit in better on Two True Freaks, just talking about comics, you know? <laughs> Um, but before we get into that, I do have a couple of quick bits of news. Um, you may have seen this back at uh, on July 7th at um, on Google. The Google Doodle for that day was in honor of the late Eji Tsuburaya, creator of Ultraman, because the July 7th is his birthday. Did you happen to see that Google Doodle? I did not. It was very neat. It was awesome. a it was a portrait of of Mr. Subaraya, and then it was an interactive doodle where you actually had a little game where you had to put together um, a set to shoot a tokusatsu. So you had to put, you know, you had to glue the buildings together and make the lights and you know get you know get the explosions right and all that. And if you did all the things correctly, you had a little tokusatsu at the end. Very fun. Yeah, it was neat to see because you know Google they they choose to honor some oddball things with their doodles sometimes. So this one was just a real surprise, and and to see the monitor Eji Subaraya, 
you know, and it wasn't like Mr. Subaru just died last year or something like that. So them picking this was, I thought was really nice and a good tribute to a very, very creative person without whom, needless to say, Earth Destruction Directive would not exist. So, uh, on, on the same vein, talking about, um, about Subaraya, uh, the new Ultraman series, Ultraman X, debuted in Japan on July 14th. And, in a first, it was picked up for distribution here in the U.S. by Crunchyroll. Uh, are you familiar with Crunchyroll, Professor? Uh, I, th- I think that's one of Emily's favorites from the sushi joint. Yes, well, the uh, besides being, uh, you know, a, a favorite of the, uh, you know, the, the, the sushi set, it's also, Crunchyroll is an online streaming service that specializes in anime and manga. And, uh, they, but they recently, over the past year, started picking up some tokusatsu, primarily Ultraman shows, although they have, uh, I think they still have Destroy All Monsters, actually, on there as well. But this is the first because this is the first tokusatsu simulcast here in the West. And basically, for, Crunchyroll is like Hulu. They, they have a free membership and then a premium membership. And with the premium membership, any of the shows that they are simulcasting, you get them here in the U.S. an hour after they air in Japan. Nice. Yeah, so that's pretty good. And if you don't have a uh, premium membership, basically you have to wait a week, and then they're free. Uh, So as of us recording this, there have been three episodes aired. Two of them are available for free to watch. Three of them if you have a premium membership. The new series is very neat. It's clearly building on what they've done the last couple of shows. The Spark Dolls, the little, um, the fa- um, oh, about four inch tall vinyl figures that have been kind of the key toys for the line the last couple of years are still playing a role. And appropriately, the toys have started showing up on, uh, I, I tend to use HLJ.com. Um, I like HLJ over some of the other sites because the folks who run it, uh, speak English as their first language. There is something to be said for that. Yeah, so so if you need customer service, they're, they're very easy to, to work with. Uh, like I said, they have the Spark Dolls. Uh, HLJ has them for about 520 yen, which is about $4.25. And Subaraya, uh, obviously getting a little confident in this, because we also have some DX Mecha. And I know you haven't seen the show, Alan, but this is pretty neat, the way that the Mecha is on this show. They have three like armored patrol vehicles, and they're named, wait for it, Aramis, Arthos, and Porthos. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. And they joined together to form D'Artagnan? Uh, actually, you're not far off because they, there's a, there's a, th- those are all three uh, ground vehicles. They're based on real vehicles. And then they have a flying drone called the Muschetti. Okay. And then <laughs> each one can join with the Muschetti to form Sky Muschetti, Space Muschetti, and Land Muschetti. Uh, respectively, and I suspect we may get a fourth one named D'Artagnan at some point. I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but there isn't to be. There usually is at least one mech, uh, ultra vehicle that is can go underwater. So I think maybe he'll become like Marine Muscatty or something. But that's just speculation on my part. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in other Ultraman comic news, a lot of Ultraman news this month for whatever reason. Um, Viz is going to be releasing the first volume of the 2011 Ultraman manga here in the United States this coming August. Uh, you can get it through previews, any place that can use the, the previews order code. Um, I use DCBS, so your local comic shop can get it through previews. In Japan, there have been uh, five Tonkaban collections. Those are I'm sure you're familiar with those, Professor. Those are the uh, squat little collected volumes. 
there's a sixth one coming later this year. So the, the, the series is still running pretty strong in Japan. I'm very interested in seeing this. This is kind of a, uh, a retelling of the original Ultraman, but uh, also taking place after the original series. So it's like Hayata returning to being Ultraman is uh, the kind of gist that they're they're selling it as. Nice. And we they're actually it, it's, it's some good synergy. They did release a Ultra Act. It's what do they call it? It's Ultra Act X SH Figure Arts of Ultraman from the manga because it is an Ultraman figure, but he's SH Figure Arts size. So I thought that was pretty neat. <laughs> <laughs> and and one other piece, and uh, this one is is kind of an odd one. This could almost be news over on Anime Freaks. Uh, are you familiar with Attack on Titan? Yes. Very popular anime show, Attack on Titan. Well, they made a tokusatsu movie of Attack on Titan, and it is going to be distributed here in the U.S. in theatrical, home media, and on-demand by Funimation, who is an old-school um, anime uh, distributor here in the U.S. The world premiere of the Attack on Titan film was uh, July 12th at the Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles. The film opens in, well, wide in Japan on August 1st, and then it's actually a two-part film. The second half opens in September. So if you if you like Attack on Titan, keep an eye out for that. I just think it's neat that this is the latest in a you know a fairly recent trend of taking animes and turning them into tokusatsus. We got this with uh, Space Battleship Yamato, uh, better known here as Star Blazers. They made a, a live-action film out of that a couple of years ago. And Attack on Titan is I mean this is so popular they had a crossover with the New Avengers for crying out loud. <laughs> So some, there's lots of tokusatsu stuff out there. If, uh, all these uh, credit for these go to uh, SciFiJapan.com as well as TokuNation.com, two good sites to check out to keep up on your tokusatsu and Japanese science fiction fixes. Well, Luke, but, well, Luke I have some news. Oh, that it's a of a more personal nature, but I, th- I think I think it applies here. All and right. that is that since we last spoke, you and I, I have read my first three volumes of manga. Nice. What so, manga? Uh, two volumes of Sherlock Bones. <laughs> the great detective reincarnated into a dog, and of course, his high school age owner is Watson. Of course. And they get into mystery solving shenanigans. Is is Lestrade the principal? <laughs> Not yet, but I'm sure <laughs> that there is a there is a detective Irene. Mm. So they, they, I've gotten an Irene Adler uh, mentioned so far, and also read a volume. Uh, this is an American, uh, Naomi Novik, uh, a, a terrific novelist who I like, has written uh, begun a series called Liberty Vocational, and the mm. first volume is Will Supervillains Be on the Final? And it's basically <laughs> a Hogwarts Harry Potter for superheroes. Hmm. <laughs> and pretty fun, so I patted myself on the back for expanding my cultural horizons. Emily must be so proud of you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> my dad, my dad, he's growing up. <laughs> they grow up so fast when they reach middle age, don't they? <laughs> I, I did pick up a couple, uh, the next two volumes of Slam Dunk, actually, at Heroes Con. But what's funny is that apparently the first three Tonka Bonds I have are by Viz, and then the the two that I four and five that I picked up were I forget who it was by the company that originally distributed. So I'm missing a chapter in the middle. Ah. So it's like I mean I know I can That's go the watch the problem the, with reprints, right? With yes. Reprints and collections. 
I, I can go watch the anime. I know what episode, <laughs> what chapter it is, but it's like, ah, come on, man. That's not the point. <laughs> hey, Slam Dunk also available on Crunchyroll. So there you go. Uh, all right. Well, I tell you what, Professor, before we get into the Ultraman comics coverage, we're going to take a quick break, plug a podcast promo in here, possibly for a show you might hear on the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Yes. No, no guarantees on that, but it's a possibility. Uh, so we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And as I said uh, earlier in the show, today the professor and I are going to be taking a look at the three-issue Ultraman miniseries from 1993, published by Harvey Comics, of all people. And yes, that is the same Harvey Comics that did Richie Rich and Casper the Friendly Ghost and Hot Stuff and, and all your favorite kids' comics of, of, of yore. Uh, this was at a time when Harvey was kind of going through some transitional periods. Uh, ownership had changed hands. They were no longer publishing their kids' comics, and they were trying to get into the then-booming early 90s uh, comics market. And one of the uh, approaches they took was getting a license from Subaraya to do Ultraman comics, and that's how we got uh, this miniseries. So, Tommy Fraser, how did you come across this uh, series originally? Well, that's an easy one. Mm. Twenty-five cents each. <laughs> and I st- and and one of them was in a bag with a card. So the sticker oh. is on that one. Uh, the other one has the uh, twenty-five cent half-price book sticker right on the cover. Guaranteeing that it will forever be worth twenty five cents. Yes, all three of these actually came polybagged with cards okay. of various types. So, <laughs> but one I picked up still existed in that state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two of my, two of mine uh, I bought. Issue number one I actually bought when it came out back in nineteen ninety three. Um, it, and it was in the summer, and that summer I was I want to say I was working at a comic shop <laughs> part time. <laughs> And uh, so I picked it up, but then when school started, my access to the comics dropped off precipitously, and and I and I, for years I only had issue one of this, and then I later found um, issue three and or issue three and then issue two uh, at my local used bookstore. One of them was uh, in the quarter bin, and one of them was in a dollar bin. I'll they were both it. they well, they were both polybagged with their cards, also, so not bad, not bad. that you know I, I had to go with that. Um, so and and you know this, this it's funny because. When I got this one, I'm a burgeoning Ultraman fan at the time. You know, 1993, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm obviously been a Godzilla fan for, uh, you know, a decade at that point since I was four years old. And we're, uh, we've just gotten the, uh, you know, the, the wholesale introduction of the Super Sentai into the U.S. with the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers adapting, uh, Zoo Ranger. 
So I, I was I was aware of Ultraman. I had watched the show that this is based on, which is Ultraman Towards the Future, known in Japan as Ultraman Great. And so I knew Ultraman was, but I didn't know a whole lot about him other than what I had read in fanzines and stuff like that. Of course, this being pre-internet. Right. So, so picking this up, I was really excited by this, and I was always uh, frustrated that I wasn't able to get the, the second and third parts of the story because this was really one of my early introductions to Ultraman as, as both a concept and a character. And there's some really nice text pieces in here where they talk right. about the history of Ultraman and all that. So now I don't want to give any spoilers, but Ultraman Great may be a bit of an exaggeration for <laughs> describing these three books. Well, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, that's just his name. That's, that, it's actually, <laughs> no, I'm serious. See, the, uh, that's, all Ultramen have, you know, have some kind of name, and except for the original, they're all pretty much Ultraman blank. <laughs> and he's Ultraman Great, and he is still known as Ultraman Great to this day. Most recently showed up in the, um, Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle, the movie, as one of the, uh, one of the Ultras fighting against, uh, Belial on the Land of the Light. You, you can always pick out Ultraman Great. Because he is the only Ultra whose costume is made of spandex and not latex. Ah, there you go. <laughs> so he's got like a latex head on a spandex right. body. So he always was like, what? What is wrong with him? But <laughs> Well, of course, for me, my Ultraman fandom began when I was about four or five or six. When these were on. Again, you know, memory is funny. So I remember watching these on my old black and white TV in my room. And, you know, when you started talking about Ultraman... I thought, oh, I remember that was that old black and white show that I used to watch. And then I remember at some point, but they had those bright orange jumpsuits and nothing <laughs> computed in my head. Oh, that's right. The show was in color. It was my TV that was black and white. <laughs> that's when you're six. And, you're and now I'm many, many decades older than that. You know, those memories sort of fade and harden. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how could I forget the bright orange science patrol jackets? Oh, you gotta love them. So, and, and, yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, I must have snuck into the living room occasionally to watch it on the big family TV because I also have memory of the color. <laughs> yeah, right. But I had not watched it in probably two or th probably three decades until the DVDs came out at, at Best Buy a few years ago. Yeah. And since yeah. then, I've watched all thirty-nine of the Ultraman, no extra title. Uh, episodes, let's just say, more than once, but hey. much to my wife's chagrin. Hey, you know, if you if you want to continue to annoy your spouse, <laughs> you can go watch on ShoutFactoryTV.com. You can watch Ultra Q and Ultra Seven now as well. I did look on. I did look on Netflix. You'd be proud of me for that. <laughs> I did look for other Ultra shows on Netflix. Well, those are the only three that have been officially released here in the states. So, uh, <laughs> and appropriate as those are the first three. Yes. But. Uh, okay, so Ultraman number one was cover dated July 1993. This information comes from comicbookdb.com because, uh, this is not cataloged on Mike's Amazing World being from, uh, Harvey Comics. Uh, our writer was Dwayne McDuffie. Uh, penciler was Ernie Cologne. Inker was Alfredo Alcala. Uh, our colorist was Clydeine Nee. Letterer, Dan Narcrosis. Editor Sid Jacobson and Brian Setzer. And our cover artist was Ken Stesey. What do you think about the cover on this one, Professor? It's not bad. It's action-packed. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got uh, weapons fire. We've got the Gudis. We've got uh, we've got Ultraman. Sort of in between he and this, uh, I assume, is uh, is our hero in his mm -hmm. uh, astronaut suit running away. 
Yeah, I, I like it. It's very dynamic. I like that Ultraman's front and center, and we get a monster in there. Uh, there is some wonky anatomy kind of going on with, with Great's uh, leg and groin, I think, there, though. That minor technicality. Uh, yeah, but you know that, but they, they, you know, they're, it's all out there or not out there, as it were. But, um, <laughs> what, one point of interest is that, uh, these books, uh, all had variants in that they could, you could have either the regular cover where it's got the, the title and on the running down the side, it's got the Ultra Comics, uh, the price, number one of three, and on the bottom it says Ultra Comics. Um, they were all also offered with what's called a virgin cover where all of that uh, cover matter, cover copy, was printed on the poly bag. Right. And so when you take the book out of the poly bag, it's just the cover image with no copy on it whatsoever. Um, I have issue number one, the regular cover. Two and three, I have the virgin cover. Same with me. That must have been the main way they got distributed. Or, yeah, or, I would guess or so. Or the main way they were unsold. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you ready to go, Professor? Issue one, we start... In media res, Ultraman fighting the Gudis somewhere in deep space. He is more than a murderer. He's an all-consuming disease. If I cannot wipe him out, I must at least contain him. The Gudis crashes on Mars, where astronauts Jack Shindo and Stanley Haggard are concluding a routine survey mission. Well, Haggard snaps some photos. Not selfies, fortunately. <laughs> Ultraman arrives and engages in a total consequence-delivering battle with our monster. A huge moon rock falls on Jack, though, trapping him. But in his final moments, he fires his weapon at Gudis, saving Ultraman. While Haggard blasts off, Ultraman repays Shindo by granting him the power of Ultraman. And in a nice two-page spread, we see Ultra fighting aliens as Shindo's job at the UMA led to dozens of situations that called for his powers. Until one day, debt repaid, Jack said goodbye to his alien alter ego. That was three years ago. Now, in the present, on a mission, Jack runs across Gudis again, whose plans for revenge begin with him. And for the first time in three years, Shindo activates the Delta Plasma Pendant, calling for help. My last moments are happy ones, because I know that help is on the way. And that is issue one. Yep. But what's interesting to me about this first issue is that we have, um, it's a 20-page story. Literally the first 15 pages <laughs> are a recap and retelling of the origin of Ultraman Great, and a quick basic, you know, uh, and that two-page splash acts as a summary of the series Ultraman Towards the Future. Yeah, I was, I, I was going to ask if this is a adaptation of Towards the Future, or a side story, or a sequel. So I guess sequel. Yes, because it, it, everything that that the that I mean that whole sequence on Mars with Gudis and Ultraman and uh, Jack and getting wounded and all that that is. Almost identical to the the first ten minutes or so of the first episode of Towards the Future. I mean, there's a few minor differences, but it's clearly an adaption of of Towards the Future, and so this really is being set up as a sequel to that series. To the point in that two page spread, um, some of the monsters that we see, including uh, Mar Marajaba and uh, Budon and uh, Gekko Karadon, these are all monsters that were from Towards the Future. So this is gotcha. clearly that. 
I mean, um, and then, then, um, so, okay, so we, we spend two, two thirds of our running length <laughs> recapping the series, and then we bring back the big bad from the series in Gudis, and on the last page, uh, we get Ultraman's coming back to Earth to, to kick some, you know, some monster butt. So. Reading uh, it simply as a comic goes a little convoluted. Yeah. You know, that does shed some light on it, but we have this flashback where we have him saving Ultraman, he is Ultraman, then Ultraman departs, and Ultraman comes back. It's, there's a lot going on in one issue of comic, but as you explain it, I guess it makes a little more sense. Yeah, and, and I, the thing that, looking at this, I mean, I mean, I, I had the time, I had seen, I had not seen all of Towards the Future. At this point, I have. So, you know, it, it's, it kind of, I don't know, it annoys me now that it's a recap, but understanding where Harvey was at in 1993, I mean, the show had aired in the United States, but I know in my, um, in my neck of the woods, Towards the Future aired at like seven in the morning on Sunday. Right. So it was not, cause it was syndicated. So there was not, you know, it wasn't like a show that was airing on like Fox Kids or something where, oh, everybody could see it and, you know, every affiliate carries it and all that. So I think if you, you're going to introduce the concept of Ultraman and base it on Towards the Future, you know, telling the origin of how they came together, I can understand going with that direction. Right. Yeah. And you know, like I said, the the shows I'm familiar with, the, our hero agency is the good old Science Patrol. Mm-hmm. But here, the UMA, really, the Universal Purpose Agency. I mean, that sounds like a great name for a brand of cleaning products. <laughs> but isn't that that's just a little vague? It's a little New World ordery to put on my uh, tinfoil hat. The Universal hey, you know, Multi-Purpose Agency. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, they've they've some sometimes the names are more straightforward than others. In Ultraman Leo, the team is called Mac. And what Mac stands for is, and I've always loved this, the Monster Attack Crew. That, that's an organization <laughs> that has a clearly defined purpose. I can respect that. See, I, I don't want to sound like some, uh, you know, some uh, Europhile from the internet, but does what it says on the tin right there, you know. <laughs> what, so, what did you um, think of the, the inside art? I thought it was a little cartoony, super bright colors. Yeah. And I wasn't yeah, sure I, what to I mean, make it, of that. I, I, my first note, art is colorful and yeah. vibrant. You know, um, for a, for a monster comic, which is essentially what right. this is, I like the bright colors. Um, Alcala's inks, I think, work well on the monsters more so than on the humans. Uh, yeah. it's, you know, because I, I mean, because Cologne, you know, he's, he's a, he's a solid artist. I mean, I've seen him do work on all sorts of, of different stuff, but Alcala's inks does just have that kind of organic y feel to him. So, like I'm looking right now at page um, page 16 when we see Shindo and the UMA chasing the big pterodactyl looking mm-hmm. monster in the in the Hummers, and I think the monster looks really good, but you know, see some of the some of the backgrounds are a little right. sparse, yes. yeah. and you know, it, it's uh, the the you know, and it does look a little cartoony in in some of the expressions and all that. But generally, I like the art. I think Ultraman looks really good. I like the special effects coloring. Such as it is. I mean, this is just regular coloring, but we get some really nice, bright. There's some very coloring. cartoony and sound what? effects, and it's a it's yes, a battle comic. So of course there are yeah. multiple sound effects on every page, between chooms mm-hmm. and vrees mm-hmm. and thocks and crunch and scrunch and foosh. 
the the yes. lettered sound effects really make me nostalgic for a a, a bygone <laughs> age of comics. Pa- uh, page four, as Gudis is um, kind of rumbling out his uh, out of his ship, his roar, which is in kind of the scratchy, and his tentacle is actually in front of, which I think is great. I I, I real that was my favorite one in the whole book. I love that. <laughs> But you got blaps and hisses and arus. You know, I've got a feeling somewhere along the line someone said you can do as many of these sound effects as you can, but you can't repeat a single one. Yeah. <laughs> I did not go through to verify that, but that's the sense that I have. Yeah, I get that too. I do. I do have to say, though, uh, for as far as a story uh, standpoint, bringing Gudis back is a good way to go for this because Gudis is essentially a great arch enemy. The towards the future is broken up kind of into two halves. And the first half is basically him fighting against Gudis and Gudis's um, negative influence on the earth. Basically Gudis being there, you know, causes mutations and, and uh, monsters to appear. So it makes sense for him to return. It's a good narrative uh, hook because it was Gudis at, brought great to earth in the first place since he brought him into the solar system. And, uh, Gudis is an interesting monster in that he is both a, he's, he's, he's a monster, but he is sentient. And in the ultra series, generally monsters tend to be just beasts. Forces and of if nature. they're a creep, yeah, a, a, mm-hmm. a, a daikaiju, you know, uh, most, uh, they're, they're, they're animals more sure. for lack of a better term. Whereas, Usually the intelligent enemies are aliens, and okay, that's like the Bulms or the uh, Zayrab or Mephilos. Or they're, and they're usually, in, in Japanese, they call them Boltan Seijin. They add the, um, uh, the um, honorific for alien after their name, usually. But here, Gudis is, is kind of both. And in fact, in, in the series, he is referred to as evil life form. He's not called a monster or an alien. So his his title kind of makes him a little unique in that he is a monster that is also sentient. So I thought that was pretty neat. He's got kind of a Lovecraft yeah. thing going on, too. And you mentioned this is the issue that has a nice two-page text piece with some pretty good mm-hmm. with some pretty good pictures as well that relates the... Yeah, including that, showing... That, that, say it it say, relates the history of the Ultraman show and then obviously is also uh, promoting uh, the upcoming... Well, because it's odd because they, they, they talk about the history of the show and then they talk about um, Toward the Future and then they talk about uh, the next show, which was The Ultimate Hero, which actually was was produced and shot in the United States and never aired in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> that, that text piece is nice also. We get a nice shot of Ultraman Great. Right. You can see what I'm oh, talking yeah. about, um, that he has the uh, uh-huh. spandex suit on. The other, there's some really nice back matter in this as a, uh, in general. There's a real nice, um, uh, two page sequence at the end where they have all of, uh, Ken Steach's sketches for what would eventually become the cover, which I think <laughs> right, is a nice right. touch. Let's see, kind of working through the process of different ideas of how to do yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I did like learning that because it really is, I guess it's five, you know, pretty different, yeah. you know, cover ideas, you know, sketches and then, you know, you know. I guess the editor picks the one and says, you know, develop mm-hmm. this one. Yeah. And then following that is a great two-page uh, Great versus yes, Gudis right. pinup. <laughs> I don't know who drew this I, I because I can't yeah. find a credit anywhere for it, but that is great. 
I mean, why if, if we gave they gave us a manga with you know of <laughs> Ultraman great fighting Gudis for I don't know you know 150 pages or something I'd buy that. Look at that, it's fantastic. <laughs> and then I love all the ads. I love they're all Ultraman related ads. Which, yes, uh, I I I do I do want to say that I did try to ask my dad to get me some of these shirts in the back, <laughs> and the answer was no. <laughs> Although really, eleven ninety five plus three dollars shipping and not handling bad. is not bad for not bad. a shirt. No. Did you join the Ultraman Quest Club? I did not join the Ultraman Quest Club. I probably if I'd should known have. Known it existed, but... I probably would have. <laughs> At the time I, um, that this was coming out, I mentioned fanzines earlier. I was uh, a subscriber and actually wrote uh, an article for a, uh, a daikaiju fanzine called the Kaiju Review. So I was kind of into the fan scene right. already, even though I wasn't even, you know, it was it was pre-internet, and this was before I was even in high school. I was already, you know, burgeoning onto that scene, such <laughs> as it is, you know. You would have so. been podcasting if podcasts had existed. <laughs> hey, I even had a mo- I even had a handle back in the day. They, I, my my nickname was Stag Beetle. So <laughs> if uh, if you go find my old issue of Kaiju Review, it's by Luke Stag Beetle Jacanetti. So. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, what, what are your thoughts on the first issue? Uh, Seth, it, you know, it, it set the stage. It was weird, you know, with that sort of flashback type of, type of, uh, you know, aspect to it. But, uh, it, it, it set the stage. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. It, if you gotta introduce the concept, uh, I think you gotta start with some of that background matter because this is a sequel to an existing right. product. I would have liked that to be maybe a little bit shorter yeah. and get a maybe introduce you know get Ultraman to Earth mm, and have a, right. a cliffhanger like that. But you know, again, uh, I, I can understand it. I really enjoyed it. I, I had uh, you know it'd been a number of years since I had read it. I think it's a uh, really nice. I mean, I'd, I'd love to get an American Ultraman comic like this oh, nowadays. Yeah. So, or any type of monster comic now, really. Fr- but uh, yeah, a lot from, of fun. From what I could tell on my limited amount of research. There's been something like 23, maybe, comic book issues featuring Ultraman you know, here in, in English, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a category where, I hate to say this, Luke, but I think that the irredeemable Shags fandom of Doctor Who dominates Ultraman, and that is in comic books printed in English. Yes, yes. So... And I mean, yeah, and, and you... do I need to confess here that I've read a heck of a lot more Doctor Who comics than the four issues of Ultraman I've ever read? Oh. Uh, you know, that's that, that day. You know, nobody's perfect. <laughs> Everybody's got their 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 cross to bear. I mean, the most. Uh, I can yeah, I mean, is the, the three. So come on. And and even then, I mean, uh, I mean, there because this there was three issues of this. There was the negative um, or minus one is the negative yeah, that, one issue. That, that is the other one that I've read. And I know you love numbering like that. There was a, a second four-issue series from Harvey, and then there was the Ultraman Tiga um, series, that which is an adaption of the uh, of the manga that Dark Horse put out. And that's really about it. I mean, there there's ones you know appearances here and there, but you know that Ultraman is 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 you know definitely is, and I stick to this, just like Shag and I discussed on you know. Uh, Doctor Who X Ultraman Big Doing Showdown Across Time and Space, the appearance of Time Lord Alien the Doctor. Uh, that, hey! <laughs> That's impressive. 
Uh, that, you know, the Ultraman and Doctor Who are the equivalents yes. to each other. Yes. I still I, agree I, with that. I stick by that. But, you know, it, it's some, some of them, I, you know, Doctor Who is better suited to comics, even the, because I think we'll see later on in this series why. As much as Ultraman is, seems like a no-brainer for comics, comics need certain things that we don't always get in an Ultraman story. So. So, uh, like I said, I, I thought it was a pretty good first issue, but uh, now let's uh, set the Wayback Machine for September, or excuse me, of August of 1993, uh, cover date for Ultraman number two. Uh, it's the same crew worked on this one that worked on the last one, cover again by Ken Stichy. What do you think about the cover? Professor? I think it's terrific. The, mm-hmm. This was the one that I had uh, in the bag, so when mm-hmm. I pulled it out, and all it was was the Virgin cover. That just that conceptually that blew me away. And mm-hmm. to me, this is by far. I actually think all three covers are pretty good. I think this one's great. Yeah, you've got Ultraman holding the body of Shindo, I guess, and mm-hmm. uh, the background colors are good. Again, it, it's all blues and oranges, very muted uh, color scheme, and. We get a lot of – this is an interesting variation on a pretty common pose in comics, which is the Pieta ripoff. Mm-hmm. Or some people say the Supergirl you know, ripoff from <laughs> – yeah. Crisis, Ev- yeah. E- e- everyone rips off that Crisis cover, even that hack Michelangelo. <laughs> but this one, you know, the body is in a similar position, but the rest of the composition is different enough that it's not right. – it may not even be an, an, an homage, but I think it does speak to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like this one a lot, too. I love the the mix of the uh, the warm mm-hmm. and cool colors yes. in the background. The the fires behind him, it kind of backlighting great a little bit, putting him almost mm-hmm. in shadow. And then his gleaming yellow eyes, I think that's a nice, nice bit of coloring and a nice touch. So, very nice color. So, issue two. According to the first page, Ultraman has not been on Earth for five years. I thought it was three years. (laughs) Last issue. Anyway, but after a harrowing adventure in space space, with some Earth weapons, he finds Shindo. But it may be too late. By human standards, my friend is dead. And yet if I'm willing to make the sacrifice, once again, I pledge my power to your cause. By now, Gudis has fled Earth to the moon, and space marines are fighting him off, but the moon colony and SETI base are in serious jeopardy, as is the special prison that Ultraman built there to house those enemies of Earth that he did not have to destroy. Gudis has the power to infect and control monsters. If he should free all of my prisoners... And, of course, he does just that. And Ultraman has to face not just one monster, but an army of monsters. <laughs> and the efforts of the fight just take up too much time. And his light goes out. And it is astronaut Jack Shindo who is now face-to-face with Gudis as issue two ends. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty bad place to end in if you're Jack Shindo. <laughs> But uh, I uh, th- this one really kind of kicks it up a notch, I think. You know, uh, 
we, we start right out of the gate with an action sequence and it pretty much goes, goes, goes the entire time, you know? And this is definitely the, the middle act. I, <laughs> I, I like the idea of having a lot of this told from Ultraman's point of view. No, that was something mm-hmm. I was not expecting. I don't know if, if that is something that the later series go into. Um, you know, again, the, in, in, in the, the old school Ultraman that I watched, it's, it's always the science patrol. We rarely, if, if ever get any, get really inside Ultraman's head or, or get his thoughts on a situation. So I really like that. Just, just that sort of took me by surprise. You know, throughout mm-hmm. throughout the series mm-hmm. as a whole. Yeah. Just just going through the book, I uh, I do like hearing pages two and three. Uh, Ultraman is attacked by the UMA. Mm-hmm. This is this ha- th- the exact same thing happens at the beginning of Towards the Future, <laughs> except it happens on Earth instead mm-hmm. of in space. Basically, a monster shows up and they see Ultraman and they attack him and they say, "Wait a minute, he's he's not attacking back. He's fighting the monster. Stop attacking the giant." You know. So, the UMA catches on faster this time than they did in the show. So, also I'd like to point out their their mecha, which are called the Hunts. In the series, they were red. Here, they have been painted silver. Uh, right. Probably a good move. Yeah, in, so, in space, okay the that. silver stands out stands out against the black yeah. background. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, uh, you know, going over, we said uh, Ultraman and Jack remerge. Um, it, it is a little clunky when you consider how the show ended, as we saw in the previous issue. You know, he, he was bonded with them when he was dying, and then, uh, he got better, and then they fought a bunch of monsters, and an Ultraman left, and now he's dying again, and he's back to merge with them again. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, didn't I read this story last issue? <laughs> I mean, this exact same story last issue? Yeah, but it's one of those necessary evils. If you're, you know, if you hope to tell, Future stories, as you know, Harvey Ultra right. Comics clearly did. You kind of need them to be re- re- to be merged again. But so you know, it, it is a little clunky. But they do kind of get it out of the way. They don't they don't linger on it. This isn't like uh, you know they just kind of get it over with in in a page and a half here. Um, the art is a little more rushed this time out, especially in this sequence. You see the background start dropping mm-hmm. out. Right. Perspective gets a little a little odd at times. I mean nothing. That really takes me out of it, but looking looking over the book for notes, that's what I started noticing, you know. Then uh, things get a little Moonraker <laughs> over on page 8, as we have Space Marines. At least this has a decency of being a science fiction comic, and Moonraker does not have that, so. This this is a new concept. I don't remember them doing a, a moon base or a monster prison on Towards the Future, but it has been a number of years since I watched it. I may, I may just be forgetting that. That does seem a little <laughs> close to the Earth. I mean, we, we, yeah. We, I don't want to kill the monsters. I, I can respect that. Ultraman is an honorable hero, so he's not going to kill the monsters unnecessarily. I appreciate that. Can you take them a little further away than the nearest orbiting satellite? Right. I mean, you. I mean, the monster graveyard exactly. in the original series was yes. out in deep space. You know. <laughs> Although I do like that they do mention and talk about that as far as that. Um, you know that that he doesn't kill. He doesn't take lives easily, right? You know that if he can stop a monster without killing it, that's what he'll want to do. But again, I do have to agree. In putting them all on the moon seems like a poor choice. But uh, you know, if not for them on the moon, we couldn't have uh, you know Gudis rip the doors off and then get the two-page spread of the army of monsters from To the Future <laughs> busting out here. That was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. 
And this is uh, this is an interesting group too because this is uh, these are actually all monsters from Ultraman Towards the Future. These are all all of these exist in uh, latex and foam at some point. I like sort of the double-headed croc serpent thing. Just, just call him Budon. I like Budon. Yeah, Le- left to right on, on this page, uh, we have Gudis obviously in the foreground, but the guy with the long neck and the dragon wings—that's Kilazi. The uh, insect-looking one is Majava. The one rearing up with the two uh, big dorsal plates is uh, Barangus. And then the two-headed one, as I said, is Budon. And then the one with that's leaping with kind of the um, like flying squirrel thing going on is Gekuradon. And all of these, like, uh, Kilazi is actually a very powerful monster. That was the last, the final monster of that uh, great fought in Towards the Future. Uh, um, uh, Budon was actually the first. So these are, yeah, these are all, and, and toys exist of almost all of these guys. That's the amazing thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, the Japanese do love to merchandise their stuff, don't they? And, but, the, you know, one, one thing here that I'm missing from the TV show, and again, my limitation is to that second series, Ultraman, is that that had some humor to it. Some of it was silly, but not all of it. And the, there was also usually some sort of explanation behind the monster's activities. And I yeah. guess if I'm coming to this from seeing the show, I already know a lot about Gudis, I guess. But I don't have much – I mean, it sounds silly. I don't have much motivation for the monster. Mm-hmm. And, again, I miss a little bit of the humor. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's not, there is some humor in towards the future, but there's none in this comic. This right. is a very serious business monster comic that we have here. <laughs> you know, the my my main issue with this, I mean, I I you know I'm okay with that because the Ultra series have kind of um, oscillated between being less serious and more serious. Uh, a good example are um, the two shows, Ultraman Taro and Ultraman Leo. Taro is a very lighthearted sort of show. Uh, but Leo, which I'm watching right now, is a very serious show. I mean, it's at the point now where if I see some, you know, random civilian, it's like I'm just going to assume that the alien's going to kill them in some <laughs> right. horrible way. Because it's, it's cause I'm like, you know, I'm like a third of the way through, and it's you know, pretty consistent, you know, of innocent people getting killed. So um, my main complaint with this this sequence is I know the names of these monsters, but couldn't we have the names... Right. Either in right. caption or, or maybe have Ultraman saying, oh, it's Kelazi, I've got to watch out for this, or, you know, Gekuradon, I've got to get behind him, or whatever, you know, in, in his internal monologue to at least tell us who these monsters are in a, and not just have them be just an army of anonymous, uh, right. daikaiju. Let me ask you this about the, the, the series, the, 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 the TV series as, as they've gone on mm-hmm. into the future. Do we get more modern type of storytelling in terms of character development ever? Are there more closer to what we would think of as sort of overriding character arcs or story arcs? Or is the Freak of the Week still the primary you know, storytelling technique? Uh, in, in the Heisai era, uh, starting with Ultraman Tiga and moving through a lot of the Heisai shows, it's the weird thing about Tokusatsu is that it exists kind of in the in the middle of those. 
Uh, Sean Engel and I talked about this a while back when we talked about Ultraman. Um, a show like Doctor Who has 13 hours to work with, right? A typical tokusatsu show has 26 mm, hours right. to work with. So, and, and, and that's not 26 stories. That's usually about 50 to 52 right. stories. So you have the time to do the character development as well as have the space right. to do those turn the crank on the story engine, fight the monster of the week type stories too. And the Ultra series fall into that. Tiga has a an epic storyline to it that spans, you know, millennium and the entire right. cosmos. <laughs> but at the same time, it still also has him fighting, you know, Golza and, Me- and Melba at some, you know, as well. So the a lot of the Ultra series now are shorter. Uh, because of the expense in, in shooting these shows, a lot of them are now 13 episodes. And at half an hour, right. so there's not a huge amount of development, but you know they do manage to build character development into that. I think um, part of the part of the nature of Ultraman by only having you know the, our hero be giant right. for you know three minutes at a clip means that the face actor gets a lot of time and we get to learn his character. The Ultraman Ginga did a lot as far as getting us to you know care about not just the human alter ego of Ginga, but also his friends at his school and, okay. and all that. So. I think they've done a good job. X has had some good development. Of course, I'm only two episodes into it, but it's had a lot of story development, and they do have an overarching story as well. I, I think I think it's you know it's it's it exists like I said, kind of in the middle of a little of both. I wonder if that's part of the thinking behind you know an issue like this, where it's basically 22 pages of Ultraman, a little bit of Jack Shindo mm-hmm. here and there, and a little bit with the UMA, but not much. It's basically Ultraman. Almost every page, almost every panel, and I'm wondering if they were right. sort of just taking advantage of that in in the sense of you know in the TV show he Ultraman's out at about minute you know 18, <laughs> and and here we can have you know we we can do something different in this form that yeah. we can do with uh, with the TV show. I don't think they've mastered the comic book form. I I do want some a human person that I can sort of understand and get behind. So sort of the lack of a character to really grab onto other than mm-hmm. Ultraman made this one a little bit yeah. tricky from just from that perspective. Again, it's action, action, action. It's fun action. But I wanted just a little bit more story or something else to grab onto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that, that's what I was getting to before when you were talking about the Doctor Who comics. Because Doctor Who, and this is going to sound horrible and I don't mean it that way, because they couldn't afford really good monsters, they had to make, they had to tell stories that involved, you know, a lot of plot, you know? And so, yeah, there's a lot of plot and and when you have a lot of plot, they have a lot of, and, and the old Doctor Who had a lot of time to fill up where you could do that kind of character stuff and the little character bits that you know, would, would slowly build up as, as writers continue to work on it. Um, so I think that translates better to comics because you can tell a longer story without having an issue of literally just Ultraman fighting monsters. And there's very little dialogue in the second half of this book until you get to about the last page or so. Just because it, it, and I think that's where it takes a lot of skill to write monster fights where the monsters aren't talking. And we only might get internal monologue from our hero and do that in a comic and not just have it be really a super quick read like this. Right. 
You know, it's not it's not like the Hulk. I you know, always that's what I always say that you know the Hulk at its core is a monster fighting worse monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, but the Hulk talks. The guys he fights generally talk. So we get dialogue and we get the story progressing through that. And you know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of like in the you know the the mid 70s to the early 80s before Peter David. You know, the Hulk, we always got lots of tension boxes right. explaining. They had their, and, and thought box and thought balloons but and all we, that. But we also Whereas here know we that, get. Sorry to interrupt you, but we no. also know a lot more about Banner than we do about Shinda. Right. Right. Yeah. Or, or and, and I think, or than we do about Hayata. I mean, whoever I, th- I think, whoever the human is. Yeah, and that was something that they they did improve upon on the series again to reference Leo, just because I'm watching it. Otri again is our main character, and the only real human main characters are him and Dan Moraboshi, who can't tra- he can't transform into Seven because he gets attacked at the beginning of the series. But he's his commander, and they are, you know, they get like 75% of the human lines on the show, so we really get to know o- Otori. So when he turns into Leo, we're right there with him, you know? And, uh, and, and we get that with, with Shindo, but again, I've seen the series. We're not getting any of that in the comic. And what I really think they were doing here was, it, it's true for all of them. They're setting the stage for what they, I'm sure, hoped was going to be a long running and fruitful comic series by saying, here's what you can expect. Right. You know, but unfortunately, of course, it, it never came to fruition. Uh, we do get some interesting back matter again. Um, we get, um, uh, more from Ken Stichy's sketchpad. I think he had a pretty good idea of what he wanted yeah, to do. Yeah, they were with all different one. versions of the same basic premise. Yeah, and then a, a very, a very nice and very manga pinup of Ultraman Great mm, fighting yes. Kilazi with <laughs> a uh, with a, a Hummer flying through. Um, I do like that. That um, I forget what the name of that attack is, but where uh, Great has his hand spread like in a V. And making the two green bolts, that is his final attack gotcha. from the show. Uh, one of the very few Ultraman who doesn't cross his arms in some way to do his final <laughs> attack. I, and Kilazi looks friggin' yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I love it. But his long neck and the little stumpy elephant feet and all that. Two tails. Very yeah. neat. Yeah, he's a, he's a classic. I, I, I am looking at a Kilazi vinyl on eBay that I may be picking up. Of course you uh, are. Just to, to tangle. Well, you know, I have, I don't know if they're ever going to make, I sincerely doubt that they're going to make an ultra act of Ultraman great, but I, I, I have the vinyl ordered. It's on back order, but the vinyls are the same height as the ultra acts. So they'll, they'll stand together and pose together. And I like to have at least one monster from each ultra hero, you know, so, so Kalazi or Gudis, you know, I'm looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so, what were your thoughts on issue number two? I th- uh, it 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 makes me want to read issue number three. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it does it 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 does what it needs to do. I would have preferred some things maybe to be a little different, but if you're going to have a fight issue, it's a pretty good fight issue. Yeah, I I agree. It's definitely a, a monster fighting issue and. That that's what you expect from Ultraman. It is very kind of slight reading it, um, just on taken on its own. Uh, I almost get the feeling as if this was supposed to be maybe an oversized mm. book or something, and they decided to make right. it a miniseries. 
But uh, no, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Anytime you bring in an, a a monster prison uh, at your moon base, and then you break said monsters out of said monster prison to form an army of monsters, you've got my you've got my money. You you've got my dollar seventy five or whatever it was for cover price. So. <laughs> All right, and that brings us to Ultraman number three, cover dated September nineteen ninety three. The same crew once again, except Ernie Cologne is credited as doing the art, and he did the inking on this, and I think you can, it's very clear that Cologne did his own inking on this book, because the inks do look uh, a good bit different. Everyone else is the same crew um, as before. And uh, what do you think about this cover? Another Lesser? really strong one. We've got yeah. uh, Ultraman doing a karate or a, a karate kick sort of thing, but he mm. is being attacked by basically all five of those monsters, it looks like. You know, yeah, he's yeah. surrounded, yeah. This is my favorite of the bunch. I love um, having the monsters on there that we can clearly see that our hero's in trouble, but he's still front and center. His back's not to us or anything like that. And um, I, I, I really like the, the karate kick that he's got going on. It's very, very martial arts, very, you know, typical of the type of uh, fighting that we would get from, uh, from you know, certain Ultramen are more martial arts heavy than others. Others are more into, you know, judo or grappling. So I, I I really like it. it's very dynamic and the monsters look great and I, I love the fire that Gekuridon is is breathing there. Hey, that I mean that looks like an atomic explosion. Now, now yours does not have clearance twenty five cents right right where that uh, fire blast is. Okay no, okay that's it a does smile. not. No I've got I've got the ver the beautiful virgin cover to this. I should see if I go pull another one out because of of that same bin because I'd frame this one. I love this this it's image. Nice, it's great. Very nice. <laughs> Issue number three. I may not be Ultraman anymore, but I'm not going down without a fight. But Kudis is not impressed by the bellowing of this foolish human speck. While Shindo is trying to recover, the irrepressible Gudis presses his attack on the moon colony. A UMA squadron attacks. The monsters are momentarily pulled away from the dome city. And by the time Gudis turns his attention back, someone was there to stop him. That's right. Ultraman! No, it can't be you! I killed you! And in moments began the cosmic battle the universe would long remember. And Ultraman defeats all the monsters except one, Gudis, who gives him a choice. You have done well, Ultraman. Now choose! Either try to capture me or repair the human city as he cuts through the outer layer of the pressurized moon dome. Of course, Ultraman repairs the wall, and then he follows Gudis back to Earth as astronaut Jack Shindo, and he wham-blammo-rams Gudis with his rocket ship. This has gone far enough! Ultraman, how? And in a move that Scott Gardner heartily approves of, <laughs> Gudis is thrown into the sun. And the people of Earth no longer need to live in fear as they once again have a protector because whatever the danger whatever the threat Ultraman is here the end let me stand up and cheer <laughs> certainly a dramatic hero moment ending yes yes definitely and uh, another kind of knockdown, drag out all action yes. issue here as you would expect from the last couple of minutes of an uh, episode right. of Ultraman. 
So, uh, uh, my, my first note, big monster throwdown. That's, uh, that's really kind of the set piece here. I mean, uh, it's, it's, you know, uh, I mean, that, that first, that page two with Shindo surrounded by all the monsters, it's like, uh, yeah. I don't, I'm gonna need to change my spacesuit, I think. <laughs> but he goes right out there, starts firing back at him. You gotta give him credit for that. Um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this issue. Again, super quick read because of what we were just talking about, that when you've got the monsters fighting Ultraman, there's not a lot of dialogue. It just isn't. So you've just got sound effects and the artwork. And, um, you know, Cologne's art is, is up to the challenge yes. of depicting yes. this fight. It's just that, you know, there's not a whole lot of story here. It, it's just a, a big monster brawl. And then chasing Gudas to Earth and the... Didn't uh, we just you know, the, have the, a big monster brawl in issue two? Yes, That's we did. That's what I thought. And, and, but what better way to have build on that last monster brawl than to have another one? <laughs> Technically, this is the still same the same brawl, brawl but... though. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I do think fundamentally that is where, as a comic book story, that if I paid a buck seventy-five or two bucks for each... I, I don't know that I'd be satisfied with it as a comic book read. Mm-hmm. As a monster story, as a visualization of an Ultraman, you know, uh, episode or movie, you know, seen in a different format, maybe. But I, I, I don't know that this is the story best told in a comic book. Yeah, and certainly not at three parts. I think you could have, if you could have cut this down, da- cut, if you could have cut this down to two parts, yeah. I think it'd be a mm-hmm. lot tighter. Um, but again, part of that is served by the fact that you've got a 15 page Exit, prologue right. retelling right. the, the right. origin. So, you know, it's, like I said, it, it, it's really enjoyable. It's one of those comics I think is better than the sum of its parts. Right. I could see that. Um, but I mean, and, and I'm more prone being an Ultraman fan to, to, to digging it, you know? So, uh, but I, I mean, like I said, it, it really doesn't have much to say, but what it says, it says in a, uh, in a, in your face <laughs> manner. I wanted to love it. I ended up liking it. And yeah. and if I'd gone into it wanting to like it, I'd probably be more satisfied. You know, so there there's a bit of an expectations gap, uh, perhaps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I liked it. Yeah, and it fits the license. That, you know, that is true. the, the idea is of true. it being a fight. So you you can't say that they didn't do Ultraman justice by having him battle that, an army of monsters and then throw boots And the, the covers really yeah. help. I, I I think all three yeah. of them are are really good to differing levels. I love number two. I can see why you'd love number three uh, the most. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the, the and even the fight with Gudis is, is kind of short and rushed, but, you know, that having been said, like I said, Geese gets thrown in the sun. <laughs> it does what it needs to do, and then it, it's as, as if what we had been saying was not clear. The house ad, the, the opposite, the last page <laughs> of the story, Says what you are seeing is only the warm up. <laughs> Next comes the series. So I yeah, they were really um Harvey slash Ultra Comics slash Nemesis slash whatever they were calling themselves that month. They had high hopes for, you know, their their ongoing monster right. action. And so this makes you know, it's kind of like the uh the pilot right. movie. Right. You know? I can see that. So, and I you know, mm-hmm. I I I do like the attempt towards the end of a you know, moral dilemma. Right? Will you save the moon base or will you capture me? But that was wrapped up so fast. That was less than a page. Right. And 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 yeah, and, I mean, and, and, and to me, that's almost that. 
that's the emotional crux of the story. You know, the mm-hmm. emotional plot decision of the story. And it's wrapped up. Yeah, right. What does, of course, to do both, which is fine. Yeah. Which is fine. <laughs> but that happens really quickly. Yeah, I would have liked to seen two pages taken away from the yeah. monster fight and one page added to the moral dilemma and one page added to the fight right. with Gudis. Uh, I think that would have served the story because it get, you're right. It does get to kind of the, the, the crux of the character is Ultraman's job to fight monsters or to defend people, mm-hmm. you know? And so w- which will you do kind of thing? So it, it's, it's a basic moral and it's question, fine. but it's a legitimate and, and it, one. It's fine that the answer is both, but right. the distance between asking and answering the question was about 45 seconds of reading time, right. maybe two or three minutes <laughs> of reading time to, you know, yeah. for the reader to stew over that a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but but maybe I'm looking yeah. for subtlety and nuance where it doesn't belong. You know, uh, you know to, I, to I don't. Extent, I mean, I yeah. can understand. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that. But but you know, there's nothing saying you can't have that right. in the story just because you're based on a property best known for having you know. Uh, two guys roll around on a set and, you know, <laughs> chop each other at, at one. And, so, and, you know, it's. And to roll over uh, train sets <laughs> worth <yeah>. of buildings. <laughs> yeah, well, those, you know, it, it's funny is that we have this, we have this common concept here in the West that these shows are really cheap when in actuality they're actually incredibly <laughs> expensive. <laughs> oh, those are just, those are just cheap sets. It's like, yeah, try building one. Exactly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, overall, I thought this was a, it was a fun miniseries, but slight. You know? I, it, I agree with both of those. Fun and slight. Yeah. I, I, and, 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 and right I now, think, fun is outweighing slight. A couple of days ago, slight mm-hmm. was outweighing fun. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I could sit down and read all three of these and have a blast reading mm-hmm. them, just to get sure. this big Ultraman fight story. Uh, I think it does a, a, a pretty admirable job of bringing a Western newbie reader up to speed on how the Ultraman series works and who our hero is. Um, and obviously it's got, like we've said, it's got lots of act monsters, which is always a, uh, a plus for me. It, it, you know, the, the story, no great shakes art is a little inconsistent and the kickoff pilot nature, it kind of wears it on its sleeve, <laughs> but you know, it's, to me, it's, it's a, it's an interesting footnote in the towards the future era right. of Ultraman, as well as this period in comics, and and I, I'm glad that I finally got them and got a chance and to this read. This is why they invented discount bits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and just to, as as the house ad said, there was uh, some follow up onto this. We had the, the minus one issue. And then the series, which was supposed to be an ongoing, but only lasted four issues and was canceled because Harvey closed its doors and didn't publish any more books after the fourth issue of Old Man was published. So, so not uh, only did Ultraman didn't quite kill take Gudis, off. he killed Harvey Comics. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, he did. Yes. Yes, he did. Uh, <laughs> but overall, like I said, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun and uh, just a neat novelty just to have this, yes, this Ultraman comic that, story, yes. you know. <laughs> Professor, let me ask you a question. Did did one of your books come polybagged or two? One of them did. Just issue two. Just issue two. The issue two, I want to say, had the, the cards in there were the yes, monsters. I have a Killa Z. Ah, it's the same one I got. <laughs> I've got Killa Z as well. <laughs> uh, number three, as I said, is a virgin cover, so at some point it was polybagged, but by the time it hit, uh, 
by the time it had half price books, it, that that part of the merchandise had gone the way of the dodo. Yes, the the uh, number three, the three cards that you could get were uh, cards of the three covers, okay. and I got uh, number uh, covered in number one in that. I do not remember what the cards were in the first in the, one. In the first one, I do not. Maybe it's on the. Hey, let me look up here. So. While you look up that, I will say, Killaz from the darkest corner of an evil galaxy comes Killaz because his name is Kill. It had it sort of, sort of self-explanatory. Yeah. A powerful bomb targeted to destroy this fire-spitting monster has only intensified the power of its laser weapons. And I love that they have the stats yes. on here. That's again another a very otaku thing about Tokusatsu is that. Well, we have to know exactly how tall, how much they weigh, how fast they are. We have to know these things. It's very important. <laughs> uh, I can't find a reference to what the cards were. I, 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 do, I don't remember, to be honest. But it, I, I've long since lost the card, so I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. So, uh, what do you say? I, I'd say if, if you see these in a discount bin, definitely pick them up, especially if you're listening exactly, to Exactly, exactly. If you're looking for fun, set your expectations to fun, and you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I think that that pretty much sums it up. So, All right, well, you know what? We are going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll get into Shogun Warriors number 19 right here on Earth Destruction Directly. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a Star Shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. And we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. And right now, we're going to be taking a look at the next issue, the penultimate issue of Marvel's Shogun Warriors, Shogun Warriors number 19. Shogun Warriors 19 was cover dated August 1980, released on or about May 6, 1980. This per Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com. Our writer is Doug Mensch, penciler Herb Trimpey. Our inker is Mike Esposito. Letterer is Mark Rogan. Colorist is Carl Gafford, editor Louise Simonson, editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter, and uh, as you can see from the cover, we've got some guest stars this time out, Professor. You know, uh, I got mine directly from the Comixology shop in Latveria, and so it <laughs> says guest starring the, and then it's whited out. So oh, that, I that, see, okay. That's probably not important. Yeah, yeah, I've I've got a I've got one that was printed um, here for the United States market, and it actually says guest starring the Fantastic Four. Nuff said. This is a disaster. <laughs> uh, I I think that it's pretty much summed up with Nuff said. I mean, frankly, that's I mean, you've got Combatra standing on top of the Baxter Building, 
getting blasted by the Human Torch. The Thing is winding up a haymaker. Reed Richards is stretching. Sue is yelling, but Reed, what does it all mean? And, uh, and by the way, Sue, quite visible. So really, yeah. <laughs> really operating at full strength there. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, I see that and I'm, I'm immediately interested at why the Fantastic Four are in, in the Shogun Warriors yes. book. So Absolutely. I think this cover is fantastic. <laughs> uh, but the only thing is it, it's a kind of an odd logo for the Fantastic Four, oh, but, yeah. uh, yeah. I, th- I think their book had that logo around this time. It's some, or, or, Something similar, maybe not with the long tails on the F, but it didn't, it would have, this, the only thing that would have improved this if this was the classic Fantastic Four logo. But our story is the giant of Manhattan. After the battle with Megatron, no, not that Megatron, go back and listen to the last episode. The Shogun pilots fly to Alongo Savage's Oceanographic Institute in Madagascar to regroup. They decide that they must warn Reed Richards as he is next on the extraterrestrial Primal One's technological hit list. Boarding Combatra, the Shogun pilots wing off to Manhattan. In space, the Primal One is fuming over the loss of Megatron and has called in reinforcements from the Charter Federation. Green-skinned, round-headed Captain Simel, captain of the Federation's most powerful ship, the Star Cruiser Nightwing. Simel knows of the Shoguns and the followers of the Light, and although she is disinterested in the Primal One's mission to stop humanity from reaching the stars, Federation law demands that she assist her fellow Federation member, no questions asked. The Primal One requests, and is granted, use of the massive planet-killer machine known as Gigantoron. Oh yeah! Yeah! Uh, this is a shoot. In my notes, every time I write Gigantoron, it's in caps. <laughs> of course it is. The Primal One pirates Gigantoron by using his own energy-based form. At the world-famous Baxter Building, the Fantastic Four are working together repairing a piece of Reed's machinery when Combatra lands on the roof. Johnny and Ben spring into action, but cooler heads quickly prevail, Reed recognizing Combatra and name-dropping Red Ronin, and the situation is hashed out. Reed Richards doesn't seem to buy the pilot's story, but before the conversation can escalate, the arrival of Gigantoron blocks out the sun over 20 square blocks of the city. Landing in the harbor, the planet killer converts into a massive robot, towering above all. The heroes jump into action. The three Shogun pilots, along with Reed and Sue, pilot the individual components of Combatra, while the Human Torch flies interference, and Thing mans the radio, much to his chagrin. <laughs> the battle is not going well when Sue Storm comes up with the theory. If they can get Gigantoron off balance, they can damage its internal gyro and ground it. Trying to tip the machine over, Sue is seemingly crushed in Earth Mover beneath one of the massive feet of the machine. The torch then burns Genji an entrance point, and she dives in with her Delta V flyer. Genji surmises that she not only has to stop the gyro, but the power source as well. She locks Delta V onto the strongest heat signature inside the machine, assuming it to be the power source, while she bails out and searches for the gyro on foot. As the others continue the battle outside, Genji is able to locate the gyro and simply unplugs it. Moments later, Delta V crashes into the power source, crippling Gigantauron, who collapses back into the harbor. The Primal One knows he is beaten again and slips away back into space. Crisis averted, and all members of both teams safely accounted for, Reed Richards agrees to help the Shogun pilots out, as the future of the human race belongs in the stars.
Next, Saviors of Tomorrow. So this was delightfully Bronze Age, wasn't it? Yes, in all the best ways possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, uh, I mean, mention Trimpy. I mean, they, they really hit their stride about midway through this book, and they, they've really turned out some, some really fun, solid stories here in, in a, a, not a big page count, because we're at the point now where I think we're down to, like, I think, 17 yes, pages yes. of story. It is, but they, there's a packed. lot going on. It is, yeah, there's a lot going on here. It is very And as, good. you know, as we discussed in the prior segment, I thought the Ultraman story was, it was okay. And I think, but not, not great. And I think part of my the disappointment with that series was that I read that and this at about the same time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is terrific. So everything oh, else yeah. similar pales in comparison. Yeah, it, it's been a real joy reading this uh, series for the show, and uh, I'm glad that, that I found <laughs> issue number one <laughs> randomly all those uh, many, many moons ago, and that I've decided to, to get the whole thing and read it. But uh, yeah, this, this was just a blast. So I've got some specific sure. notes that you're ready to get sure. into the book. So right on page one, as, as has been kind of the trend for this series, we have a nice splash page to start it of Combatra leading... Uh, the other two Shoguns who are in their flight modes, overtaking a fighter jet. I really like the posing here. Yes. I, um, Kombatra looks, looks really great, and I love the Kirby hand mm-hmm. that that he's got going on. That The first of numerous Kirby um, homages or touches in this book. And and uh, but that Kirby hand, I always like the Kirby hand, so that one jumped right out. I think this is a really nice... Uh, Splash, and again, I've, I, this is kind of a broken record for me, but I love Carl Gafford's mm. coloring. Well, I mean, this that, is just such a nice layout because in this single image on this page, we get commentary from inside the jet. We get the three very different Shogun machine you know, flying right at us, including one that looks kind of like Toucan Sam, <laughs> and we get text. Right, that, that, mm. there is a lot of content coming at us in one page that does not look cluttered it looks like everything has a place and is in its place yeah i mean herb trimpey who of of course uh passed away earlier this year you know he he kind of uh got i don't want to say dumped on because i think a lot of people liked and respected his work but he was always kind of seen as like kind of the workman like guy you know he never got kind of the praise of your uh, like your John Romita Juniors or uh, some of the other contemporaries that he worked with. But one thing I think everybody always would Trimpy could lay out a page. And, and we see that a lot in this book. And this splash is a beautiful one example. thing I noticed about the design of the whole story, and then I, I, I went back through it to verify, there is not a single page layout that is standard on right. any single page where we have like, you know, six identical sized panels. Yeah, they, yeah, we have and, long and panels. That. We have wide panels. We have a few diagonals, and they're. And I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll point out a couple specific ones they thought were especially strong, but overall, mm. the design feature is a strength of this issue. Uh, turning over to page three is where my next note is. Panels uh, one, one through three, where we see the the Nightwind. I really like this ship. It's just it's just a a hexagon. Mm-hmm. But it's this massive hexagon with jet engines on the back. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a sucker for oddball looking spaceships because, you know, I think a lot of times we make spaceships and we, we kind of extrapolate from 
like we do the Star Wars right. thing. We extrapolate from fighter jets and stuff like that. And absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, for a space opera type story like Star Wars, that is great. But when you want to show something is really alien, Star Trek right. did this with right. the Borg cube. But this is 1980, <laughs> so this predates that by quite a while. Now, I just, I just Borg never had a hexagon. No, I just assume this was some kind of product tie-in. It looks a lot like a Twinkie. Just if you want to visualize it, <laughs> think of it as a hollowed-out Twinkie. So what you're saying is that's a big Twinkie. <laughs> but again, great design. The top half of the page yeah. is three long panels, and mm-hmm. what you're doing in those three panels is getting closer and closer. You know, moving from a mm-hmm. far away shot to a medium shot to more of a close up, and then at the bottom of the page you have four. Vertical panels, and even they are not exactly the same size. Oh yeah, I mean, just visually interesting the way every page is laid out, and that—that's something Trimpy's done this entire mm-hmm. run on the Shogun. This has not been a book that looks standard, and it doesn't draw attention and, to itself. You know, sometimes design element can—you know—you go outside the panels, you know, you're breaking the panels, mm-hmm. you're doing things that are that are showy, and I didn't get that from this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just being. Uh, it's just dynamic more than, yeah. than anything and, and else. And I, I do like the oval uh, design of, of that alien's face. I think that's a nice touch. It's just a, a shape yeah. you don't see. Very Silver Age mm-hmm. sort yes. of aliens yes. here. And and almost more like you'd expect from like a DC book from the Silver Age. Mm, okay, I can see that. Than, yeah. than a Marvel book because DC did more of like the crazy one-shot alien races right. between like Superman and the Legion than, than Marvel did. But, you know, I look at the captain, like I said, she's green skin with the big oval head. It's like, this looks like someone who would come to Metropolis and challenge <laughs> Superman to a hot dog eating contest or something, you know. But uh, and but also you get to see some, some great Kirby crackle around the primal right. one here, right. another Kirby reference here. So, uh, yeah, then turning over to uh, page six. Um, and then we just get this. This is the one page in the book that I didn't quite get. We're... we're Okay, we're we're at the Oceanographic Institute. We're deciding that we have to go warn Reed Richards, but let's look at these fish. Right. <laughs> Get the yeah. feeling Trimpy just wanted to draw a swordfish, you know? <laughs> so that or, I mean, I guess they had to fill a page with dialogue. We get to see Judith, I'm assuming probably for the last time, uh, Savage's girlfriend slash right. lab assistant, uh, who I'm sure is, is thrilled that he's flying off yet again since he just got back. That's comic book law, you know? The next page, page seven, the um, a, a, again, uh, a great layout, but uh, specifically um, panels uh, five, six, and seven with the separation of the outer hull of the oh, Nightwind. I mean, is it, I mean, this looks. My note is this plays a lot in my mind, like two thousand one, mm-hmm, a space odyssey, or there's a Japanese film from the mid '80s called Sayonara Jupiter, which is kind of like this, you know, space hardware wet dream movie, <laughs> and you know, so it's like, oh man, but. That just, I mean, it just looks, it just looks really, really nice. And it's so simple, but it, the whole, I mean, the whole page just looks really sharp. And, and there's some da- uh, pretty subtle diagonal handling, but it works. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not, it's not showy. It's not, it's not there just to be there. And I think the diagonal panels, because if you look on those three, um, on uh, panel five, the first one of the sequence, the night wind is all the way to the left. And then in the middle panel, the inner core that becomes Gigantoron <laughs> is in the middle of that uh, panel with the hull 
kind of drifting to the right. And then in the bottom one, Gigantoron is actually flying off the page. So we get a nice sense of motion from those diagonal yeah, and they're serving a purpose, well. or they're being used mm-hmm. to, to serve a purpose. I, yeah. I just thought the cosmic parts of the story were really well portrayed. I liked Gigantoron, and then also the space behind 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 mm-hmm. the machine is great. Yes. Yeah, and going over, the, the next panel is uh, page 10, panel 1, with Gigantoron flying towards Earth. That is, okay, I mean, that is a very Kirby panel oh, yes. right there. It's, I mean, the Kirby tech, the, the, the line work, the Kirby crackle on space. Oh, my God, the colors in space, like the, the wave of purple and the yellow stars and all that. That is a Jack Kirby homage panel. Yep. And I can only imagine that this was because they were working with the Fantastic right. Four. Right, sure, sure. That, but, oh, my God, I love and, that panel. You talk about the, the depth of color in space. That and that beautiful. panel is an odd shape for a comic book. It's basically a square. Because it's taking mm-hmm. up, I guess, about the top two-thirds of the panel. So it's a nice square shape. Then you have a little bit going on at the bottom. But again, very nice. Yeah, I mean, all I mean, the whole art crew comes together on that. Because, you know, uh, I mean, the layout and the, the tech itself by Trimpy. And then uh, Esposito's mm-hmm. inks. I mean, those heavy inks showing all the motion and everything through the, the thrusters in the back. And then the blacks on the on the uh, in space, and then Gafford with the colors. I mean, if you had if you took this panel and you showed it to somebody, I you know there'd be people that would say that they that that was Jack Kirby, just sure. taking it completely yep. out of context. Yep. You know, oh that must be from like his 2001 <laughs> or something like right, that. You right, right. So yeah, just really good. Um, then turning over now to page 11, where we the FF are introduced to the story. Uh, weird to see Herb Trimpey working on the Fantastic yeah. Four. Um, I did a little research, and according to uh, comicbookdb.com, Trimpey never worked on the main FF book. The closest he came was he did a story in, one, in a later annual, like I think in the 20s on the annual. And he did a lot of work on Fantastic Four Unlimited Okay, sure. in the 90s, which was the quarterly series. But he never worked on the main book. And it's odd because his Fantastic Four has a certain, like, kind of Marvel Bronze Age house style to it. Like, if you look at, like, Johnny's face in the last page there where he's yelling, Flavon! You know? <laughs> that that face doesn't look like one of Trimpy's faces <laughs> right. so much. I'd, I'd, I I need, like, Scott Gardner or Mike Bailey here or, or Andy Leyland. Who could look at this and say, "Oh, that was clearly redrawn by him"? I'm no, not that no. guy, so. <laughs> I mean, but I've, I, 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 you know, obviously with this panel here, you know, I'm excited because, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of, of the FF being, being a Doom guy. So obviously, if you <laughs> asked me on to this episode, clearly there's got to be some Doctor Doom coming later in the story. So I guess spoilers <laughs> for me. I'm just, I'm really, really anticipating that. Look, really looking forward to that. What? 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 Let's let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> I said so we we do get a flame on, which is nice. And then um, then turning over to uh, page fifteen as uh, Torch and uh, the Thing attack uh, Combatra on the roof of the Baxter Building. Panel two, we get a, it's clobbering time. And the great sound effects, Boo Lang. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> 
I think I ate at a place <laughs> called Bulang once. Like, they had really good pho. You should you, we'll go there. It's, we'll go there one time for lunch. It's fantastic. But <laughs> yes, Bulang. It's fan. I love that. It's and it and it's. I I mean that's what it would sound like with punching a big metal thing. So I I can totally buy that. <laughs> Later on down the page. Uh, panel four, Reed Richards name drops Red Ronin. And this was more, mostly interesting to me because earlier in the series, Mench made a point of trying to like, he was talking about S.H.I.E.L.D. but didn't mention their name. Right. And he was talking right. about stuff that happened in the Godzilla series. And then later he came out and just said S.H.I.E.L.D. and stuff and now they're dropping Red Ronin. I think at this point, Mench is like, look, it's, it's, he's just being clear that all of it is connected and it all counts, you know? <laughs> I still wish we could have gotten a Red Ronin crossover into the series, but it was not to be, unfortunately. Because you'd be surprised a number of times people ask me, hey, Red Ronin, was he a Shogun warrior? <laughs> like, no. Sort of, but no. <laughs> then turn over now to page 17, The um, again, another very eclectic layout to the page here. The, the last three panels, panels 5 through 7, Gigantoron transforms kind of by standing up. And um, I like this, but this is very similar to what we got earlier in the series with the, the robot monster Cerberus. Uh, he was a kind of like a flight platform, like a flying machine type. And then he stood upright and uh, became a monster. Now, Cerberus didn't have legs. He actually just had jet engines, so he still hovered off the ground. But he had long arms like this and stuff. So, I mean, I, I like the design of Gigantoron. He reminds me of the uh, the classic movie monster Kronos. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Uh, Kronos was a, basically, a, he looked like a giant walking box. Was, he was basically like a giant inductor in that anything you hit him with, he would keep absorbing. It's like they drop an atomic bomb on it, and he just absorbs all the energy. So, he reminds me of, of Kronos because he's got the real boxy shape, but I like the forearms and the, the bell-bottom-like um, <laughs> legs. Which is appropriate, as we'll see later with the hostess ad. Now, on the next page, page 19, there are some panels on this page that are nearly 50% text of some kind. Especially yes. panel 2. <laughs> but panel 3 yeah. and 4 are also probably 40% text? Yeah, there's a lot they got to convey. <laughs> yeah, I think this is cause... where the 17 pages shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they've got to they've got to explain that Combatra can split into five different modules, and somebody can pilot each one. And okay, well, uh, me and Susie will go. Johnny, you fly interference. Ben, you stay and guard the base. We have to explain you know? two plans, basically, two teams worth yeah. of plans. <laughs> and then we got to explain where everybody <laughs> is because that does become important. So, uh, I do love. The thing in panel three, grabbing his head. Sheesh. Left out of the action again. <laughs> yeah, and then panel one, just, my, my note just says scale and colors. I mean, the Shoguns are huge. That's something they play with a lot in the series, is showing the Shoguns relative to regular sized people. And Combatra looks really insignificant in front of yes, Gigantoron. Yes. <laughs> And then the colors are, are great also in the last two panels as the battle is uh, begins. Just some real great warm uh, and hot colors, some yellows and oranges from, from Gafford, which has been a, a, kind of a one of my favorite parts of this series. I know people are probably sick of me hearing it at this point, but hear, hearing me say it at this and point. And then the, the, the next page, we've got a lot of, and a lot of orange 
uh, flames and beams being shot all over the top mm. half of that page. Oh, yeah. And these two pages, 22 and 23, there is a lot of panels crammed in here. Yes. This one has maybe nine, if I'm looking at it right. Maybe ten. Nine. Yeah, not nine panels yeah, but, on this page. Nine. Amazing. Between the two of them, I think, the, yeah, I think between the two pages, there are 20 yeah, panels right. between these pages. And it really gives it a very frenetic, frantic feel. You know, there, like you said, there's the laser blast everywhere. There's the, the five components zooming all in different directions. There's stray blasts hitting this, hitting the city. You yeah. know, there's all sorts of stuff going on here. <laughs> but it, it never feels confusing. Right. Right? You can follow it and understand what's going on. Turning over now to the next, or page 27, um, after uh, Genji, um, after the Human Torch blasts inside and Genji flies let, inside Gigantor. Let, let me jump back to 26 just for a second. Because in, in sure. the middle of that, this is the second time that you've got some diagonal work going mm-hmm. here. And this time, it's almost gimmicky, but not quite. Everything else in the book has mm-hmm. been also, I, you know, we said uh, the panel, it's all been right angles as well. You know, and there's no right. curve, no circle, you know, you know, pop outs, anything like that. Uh, it's all mm-hmm. been right angles, you know, uh, squares or or rectangles. And this is the second time we have we have some some diagonals. So even you know those touches are rare, few few and far between. You know, where needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, conveying a lot mm-hmm. of sense of exactly. motion because we see Genji. Ditching Delta V and jumping out to land on the inside of uh, Gigantoron, mm-hmm. which which brings me to um, uh, twenty seven pa- page twenty seven panel four, where she's running along the in- the internal circuitry. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm showing my nerd card, but kind of an <laughs> MC Escher vibe here, huh? I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> As Weird Al said, MC Escher is my favorite MC. So, <laughs> and then in what can only be deemed as once again seventeen pages. She defeats the gyro by unplugging it. Well, yeah. <laughs> Chick and foom. Yeah. It's boom. You know, it's like wow. If if only we had thought to, uh, you know, <laughs> to put a lock on that. That would have stymied her cold right there. You know. But hey, not not everything I guess has to be complicated. It's like uh, I guess in. In Goldfinger, when they walk in and turn the bomb off, you know. <laughs> I mean, well, this is drama. I've got to deactivate this w- yeah. without somehow killing myself. Maybe this thing <laughs> here. Yes. Okay, <laughs> well, hey, you know, it, well, you know, a superpower is a superpower. Exactly, another Jack Kirby <laughs> reference right there. Um, and then uh, with with his power defeated on page thirty, panel one, Gigantoron collapses down into the harbor. Now, I have to ask, as big as this is, wouldn't this have caused a tidal wave? <laughs> they were at low wouldn't tide. Wouldn't we be looking... Low yeah, low tide in the harbor, yeah. I love we, we got uh, Liberty Island there and Lady Liberty right. on the right-hand side of the panel. And they are dwarfed. Yeah, I mean, uh, good gravy. I, and I do like that they took the time to actually draw the pedestal, mm, and right. it's fairly accurate. So, um, A couple of years ago, my wife and I took our oldest to um, Manhattan, and we went down the Liberty Island and uh, visited uh, the statue and all that. And the, one of the things they talk about there is that one of the great marvels of the pedestal is that it's almost as tall as the statue, but you almost never notice it. In- interesting. Interesting. Yeah. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, but that's, that's, um, I will say there is a really kind of, uh, if it was intentional, it would be offensive coloring error on uh, panel four. Oh, oh, I think you know the one I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the bright yellow skin on Genji. I'm assuming that is a coloring error and not an intentional thing, but, uh, she, we haven't seen that yet in the series, so. Um, so what'd you, what did you think? That's a dramatic was- ending. I mean, I'm really yeah. hoping you're planning on covering issue 20 next episode. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes, I, <laughs> I don't want to have to wait to find out how this ends. I mean, overall, this one was very fun. Now, I confess, I mean, similar to what you confessed, to being surprised how much you've enjoyed these, you know, following along mm-hmm. just as a listener. You know, this is the first one I've I've read, but it's been fun following along with your enjoyment of the previous 18 issues. And oh, yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I'll be honest, I put that off a little bit to the strength of your fandom. And you know, mm-hmm. Luke, he likes everything. <laughs> but, there's, there's a meme I haven't heard in a while. I really enjoyed this. This was dynamic, exciting, big, big old-fashioned fun. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Mention Trimpy, they've hit their groove on this series, and they are just barreling towards the finale at this point. Um, just, I mean, it's just a fun action building to a really big blow-off. I mean, what what more can you ask for than fighting a giant robot with the Fantastic Four in New York Harbor? I mean, and I, and I also really appreciate that this is, I'm putting air quotes up to the mic, really part right. of the larger Marvel Universe as well. That was really cool as well. And, so I, I really yeah, dug this. I, as, as did I, and I don't want to get you know, get you too far ahead of yourself, but what's next after Shogun Warriors? Strike Force Moratorium. Mm. <laughs> no, we're going to be we're going to be jumping back in time for another Doug Mensch Herb Trimpy joint and doing Marvel Godzilla, ah, nice. of which I probably of should have done first, but you know this makes more <laughs> sense. Um, I just want to say on the uh, the Warrior Dispatch letter page. They, uh, they, they do that the, the next issue is the one you've been waiting for. The Shogun Warriors finally wrap it all up. The one in which the Secret Force behind the final one is finally revealed. And, uh, so they, they, they do, you know, they, they had talked about that changes were coming to the series after the, uh, uh, the, the big, uh, storyline with, um, Dr. Demonicus. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing kind of the changes getting rid of the, the, the followers of the light, putting the warriors out on their own didn't, jumpstart sales and so they decided to end it but i think they're ending it on a really high note here so unless the next issue is a big letdown i'm, I'm going to be very happy with I how mean, this you can goes. always tell when the writer knows the end is coming and has some time mm-hmm. to prepare for it and that's yeah. just always a much more satisfying conclusion yeah so yeah, again totally. high just... high expectations mm-hmm not not a whole lot of noteworthy ads this time out. We we get the you know some of the usual suspects, uh, the hodgepodge ad, uh, the great whoppers from history, which is one that that I like. Um, you know we get uh, the Hulk utility belts like why Hulk need utility belt. Um, but we do get speaking of the Hulk, we do get a a uh, hostess ad, and it is the Incredible Hulk versus the Roller Disco Devils. Which is why I said Gigantoron's bell-bottom <laughs> pants might be uh, uh, appropriate. Uh, Professor, would you like to take the role of the Hulk? I would love to. Then the the Earth Destruction Directive players would like to <laughs> welcome you to Hostess Theater 
it goes a little something like this. The roller disco devils have been terrifying the town. Wow, things are really bad. Yeah, our moms won't let us out of the house. We can't even buy some hostess fruit pies. Someone else is very upset by the devils. Hope not like loud noise. You like to roll? Okay, roll! Now street safe and quiet. Yay, hey! Now we can get all the hostess fruit pies we want. Thanks, Hulk. I like the real fruit filling. Mmm, apple, cherry, peach, too. Wow, that's great crust. Why can't all humans be nice like hostess fruit pies? You get a big delight in every bite of hostess fruit pies. I do like this idea that the Hulk hates disco so much. He will tear up a city street and roll bad guys into it. I mean, this is 1980, so I guess, you know, we've already had Disco Demolition Night by this point, right? Wow. Just wow. I mean, this gang, this has got to be the least threatening. The only one I think that comes close to this is the Hawkman one, where the crowd is getting unruly at the... Uh, it's a band that's standing in for wings. See, that one I just assumed that Hawkman would dish out some Thanagarian justice and start bashing the crowd. But, uh, I mean, look at this dude. He stole Luke Cage's yes. shirt and then he embroidered some flowers on it. I mean, that's just dumb right there. <laughs> and I love the lyrics here. Yeah, yeah, baby, woo, woo. That sounds like just about every disco song I've well, ever heard. I don't heard, like so. that loud noise either. <laughs> I just see the, I just picturing the professor going crazy, tearing apart, you know, uh, his classroom, causing dozens of dollars exactly. in damages. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever had a peach fruit pie. I, I know yeah, I've had apple yeah. and cherry. Blueberry. I don't know about peach. Blueberry. Yeah. Blueberry. Yeah, you you like the blueberry because you want to make sure it stains exactly. your shirt when it, it drips out of there. So. <laughs> Oh yeah, th this was an absolute blast. I mean, it, I'm I'm of mixed emotions to cover number twenty next time because I really want to read it and see how it goes, but I'm I'm gonna be sad when it's sure. over. You know, this has been a heck of a ride uh, for the Shoguns, and it's it's oh, man, just another good issue you right here. You made a good choice in 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 <laughs> in starting that 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 project. Yeah, well, like I said, and I'm glad that the the listeners have seemed to enjoy it a lot too because. You know, I mean, I didn't know that there was a Shogun Warriors uh, Marvel did one. I mean, that that was before my time. I mean, this. I mean, I was born in 1980, so you know, I mean, I knew of the Shoguns, but not that they ever had a comic. So just finding that issue it just goes to show you the good things that can happen when diving through a cheap pit. Exactly. <laughs> the worst that happened, the worst thing that can happen, is a paper cut. Yeah, and and but those really do hurt. <laughs> but anyway. Um, I tell you what, why don't we, uh, take a quick break and we'll be right back to wrap things up here on Earth Destruction Directive. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. 
and the great feats of editing not yet performed. And this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search on iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. And we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, okay, Professor, I want to thank you for coming on and being my guest. It's been a, a wonderful time having you here at Earth Destruction Directive. Where else can we find your thoughts and musings <laughs> on the Internet? Well, Luke, thank you for having me. It's been a, a very pleasant experience, though I don't know what the final edit will sound like. I'm keeping the raw <laughs> recording just in case. I'm just saying. Are you saying you're 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 are you saying you're concerned about a Professor <laughs> Allen life model decoy? <laughs> well, <laughs> I can be found at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Search Relatively Geeky in iTunes or find us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com and there you'll find content almost once a week or so on average under many different podcast names. Many of them are my solo show, The Quarter Bin Podcast, all about books I literally paid 25 cents or less for. And Short Box Showcase, the show I do with my scion, my progeny, Emily. And we talk about topics and concepts and comics and related media. A lot of TV episodes, just because that's mm-hmm. been happening a lot recently. And for fans of this show, I highly recommend episodes 10 and 11 of Short Box Showcase from late 2013, <laughs> our very first episodes with a guest. And that guest, Luke Giaconetti. Yes, well, where I got to read my own emails. <laughs> You got so sick of me writing in, it's like, this Jack and A guy can read them himself for all that's, I care. That's not, okay, that's not totally different <laughs> from how the conversation went, but, yeah. uh... I, I don't want to lie, but I can't finish that sentence. <laughs> well, fantastic. Like I said, I, I, uh, I love the quarter bin because I also am a, am a fan of the Absolutely. cheap bins and I love the random stuff that you find. Uh, I had a um, I had an opportunity to listen to you guys' convergence mm. super <laughs> <Yes>. show, <laughs> and um, what what was funny is I, at the beginning of it, I found myself yelling at the MP3 player um, because some of the you know you guys I just was like no that's wrong what are you saying that for and I'm like oh wait they're saying that people got this wrong okay that's <laughs> I'm okay I'm okay now you know I'm like like William Shatner in Airplane Two I'm okay I'm okay. But, uh, <laughs> no, but as, as, and, and I, I will say this, I, 
I may be the only guy who will admit to this, but I freaking loved Convergence. I thought it was fantastic. And you should, if you find though the the, the eight issues in the cheap bins, pick them up. But because if you, cause as much as you guys like the little two parters, I think you'll dig the overall story. It's got, I mean, uh, you know, Scartaris and well, I know uh, the the the, I, the 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 warlord characters made a yeah. major a major appearance in a few issues. I heard. Right. Yeah. That's so, enough uh, for me. I mean. I mean, Demas is one of the major bad guys, but, uh, but anyway, uh, this, this isn't a convergence podcast. Um, as I said, thank you very much for that. I really like your shows, thank uh, you. all three of them. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I wish, uh, Miss Emily could get oh, them know, out more I often, know. but she's got a life. Ooh. <laughs> Kids these days. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, you know, she'll catch up to being middle-aged <laughs> some point and she'll be just like us. I learned from watching exactly. you. Yeah. But, uh, uh, so, next time on Earth Destruction Directive, we are getting back into the Godzilla series, the Showa Godzilla series, to be specific, and we are taking a look at 1964's Godzilla vs. The Thing, known also as Mothra vs. Godzilla. This is one of the most popular and seminal entries in the series, often cited as many viewers' favorites. Uh, this film is easily available on DVD, but if you don't want to go that route, it has just recently become available for free streaming. It is ad-supported, but free, on ShoutFactoryTV.com. A couple weeks ago, as we're recording this, ShoutFactoryTV did a all-day monster movie marathon, and all of the movies they showed are now available for streaming for free on their website. So you can go to ShoutFactoryTV.com to check out Godzilla vs. The Thing. Uh, also, as we... Uh, referred to earlier, we'll be covering the final issue of Shogun Warriors, Shogun Warriors number 20. How are the Shogun Pilots going to get out of this one? You'll have to wait and find out, because I haven't read it, and I can't tell you. So, I, I only read them as I get ready to do the show, because otherwise I would just binge read the whole thing in one sitting. <laughs> uh, so that's what's coming up next time. We'll have uh, any new news or developments on the Daikaiju and Tokusatsu front as well as uh, anything else that uh, seems fit to print. Uh, Professor, just want to thank you one last time for coming on the show. Really appreciate having your uh, your opinions and insight into Ultraman and the Shogun Warriors. You're very welcome. I really appreciate the invitation. Well, you know, you're always welcome here. Just call first. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't want to do the pop-in, you know. <laughs> calling from the driveway! No! No! <laughs> <sighs> It's like Don Knotts as a as a crank caller. I've been staring at you through the window. Is this Don Knotts? Ah! Anyway, so uh, okay. Till, till then, next time we'll be Godzilla vs. the Thing and Shogun Warriors number twenty. Uh, big thanks again to Professor Allen for his uh, taking time out to talk to us tonight. And until then, keep them stomping. Nice. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, 
and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible. Relatively geeky, how may I direct your call? Uh, I need to talk to the man in charge. Uh, well, Emily's not available, but uh, Professor Allen, will that do? No, I need someone with some decision-making authority, please. <laughs> exactly. So, and that, but yeah, and then it's typical. The, the last book is basically a monster fight, right? And there's not a lot of dialogue, so it's like, oh, and this happens, and we go. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, wait, did Bendis write this? How did I do it so quickly? No, if Bendis wrote it, it would be Jack Shindo staring at his navel for <laughs> 22 right. pages. All right, <laughs> all right, all right. I see that your I, I see I, that your uh, your brother wormed his way onto the horror show full time. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is that um, for the freak's choice, my choice was Videodrome because when my I I knew my that's one of my brother's favorite movies, and so I said, well, if I said if we do Videodrome, then then Jay can come mm-hmm. on and be a guest. And so I, I said this to the other guys, and they're like, well, you know, does, if you want, he can come and do the, the one we're talking about, Tomb of Dracula. And I said, okay, I'll float it to him. And, and my brother's not a big right. comics guy, you know, he, um, but he does like horror comics, so he was cool for that. And they like talking with him. They're like, oh, we'd like to have him on full time. Like, <laughs> he's one of the nicest Jack okay. and Eddies we've ever met. Yeah, he's way better than you. It's like, oh, okay. The Hulk versus, <laughs> oh, no, Roller Disco Devils? The Roller oh, Disco Devils, word. yes. Uh, all right, well, uh, I know you're on summer break, but some of us mooks got to work in the morning. Hey, man, so. I've, I've got a class in four weeks. I need to get to bed, too. <laughs>